I want to uh, conclude the series that we've been teaching on the life of God. Uh, to be real honest with you, it's probably a good thing that my family and I are going out of town for a few days. I don't think I'd ever finish this series otherwise. You know, it's, it's that way with the things of God. Uh, you get on a subject that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You don't run out, at least I don't. And uh, it just gets bigger. And it's almost like uh, when you're studying something, every scripture you see in the Bible or everything you see in the Bible pertains to that subject that you're on. That's because the Word of God is spirit and it's life. It's full of life and power. The Word of God is full of life and power. I'll remind you of a couple of scriptures that we've started with in this series. John chapter 1, verse 4, is speaking of Jesus, says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, we've made this uh, statement before, but I think it bears repetition. And that is, there are four different words that are used in the New Testament that are translated into the English uh, word life. But um, uh, three of them have to do with either this natural human existence, this time here on the earth, or behavior. And most of the church world focuses on behavior. But the word that's talked about where it speaks of Jesus in his connection with life is not the word for behavior. It's not the word for natural existence. It's the word for a different kind of life. Now, it's the word zoe in the Greek, Z-O-E. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right or not, but unless you're a Greek scholar, you won't know, so I won't tell you. But um, the, the, uh, the authors, in this case John, would have to use a word that people could relate to. It wouldn't be like God could create a word or invent a word that nobody knew the meaning of and, and, and have any clarity or understanding when it was used. So he had to use a natural word, and he did. He used a word that, that's a, a word that was used commonly in the Greek language, in, natural, in uh, Greek conversation, I should say. But um, he used it, the Holy Spirit tagged certain words to be used to mean something related to God, something other than the natural, understood definition of the day. This is one of those words. Uh, For example, it says in uh, John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I am come that you might have life. Now that gives us the first indication of what the difference in life is, the life of God or the Zoe life. We'll call it the life of God, and I'll explain why in a minute. But it, uh, it gives us the first intimation of a difference in this life than what they would normally think of concerning this Greek word zoe that's used in, in conversation or in, in natural, in uh, uh, secular writings is the word. That's what I'm looking for, secular writings. Jesus said uh, of himself in John chapter 5 and verse 26, and we've looked at all these scriptures before, but I think it bears repetition. Jesus said, as the Father has life, zoe in himself, so is he also given unto the Son to have zoe in himself. Well, if this life is different from a life that they know, and it had to be, Jesus said, the thief comes not but for to steal, kill, steal, and destroy, but I'm come that you might have life, and you might have it more abundantly. He's got to be talking about a life that they didn't already have. Right? He's got to be talking about, I'm coming to bring you something new, something you've never experienced before. Otherwise, what's the point in Jesus coming to bring anything? So it's a different kind of life. And the first indication we have of this different kind of life is it's the opposite of stealing, killing, and destroying. In other words, instead of stealing, which takes away from you, it adds to you. Instead of killing, which robs from you, robs life, robs experience, robs enjoyment in some way or another, whether physical or or, uh, physical existence or otherwise, the life of God adds that to you. 
You know, one thing I wish we could get across, one thing I wish we'd really understand is that God wants you to enjoy life. Too many Christians don't enjoy life. Too many Christians are thinking that God's working against them so that they won't have any enjoyment in life. And that's not what the life of God's about. Anything that destroys is of the devil, and the life of God is the opposite of destroying, which means he adds to you. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life. And then he went even further. He said, and to have that life more abundantly. What in the world is more abundant than the life of God? My personal opinion. I think he's saying there's no end to how good the life of God is. I think he's saying there is no end to the blessings of God, to what God will add to you, to what God will do for you, to what God will experience or allow you to experience with him. And that's abundant life, abundant life of God. Now, there are other words that are used in Scripture in similar ways. For example, the love of God. There is a word in the Greek, uh, the Greek word agape, that's always used when it's talking about God's love toward us. For example, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That means he agaped the world. Now, agape was a word that was used in, in common Greek language. And people understood it to mean love, but Jesus is talking about a different kind of love. We know the difference between natural human love and godly love, the God kind of love. Natural human love will give up. Natural human love will finally get to its break point and say, that's it, I'm done. But the love of God never fails. It never fades out. It never weakens. It endures everything without weakening all the way to the end. So we know that there's a difference between the love of God and natural human love, even though the word, Greek word, might be the same as you could use in other writings. Same thing's true where faith is concerned. We know there's a natural faith. There's a faith in what you see. Most people believe in what they see. But the faith of God, Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, have the faith of God or have faith in God, literally have the faith of God in the Greek. Well, what is the faith of God? The Bible identifies the faith of God is that which speaks, calls things that be not as though they are, and then praises God for the answer before it sees it. Well, that's certainly not natural faith. We operate according to what we can see and feel naturally. And there are times where that's important. You want to cross the road, you better look and see, you know, go by what you look and go by what you see coming down the road. So there are times where that's necessary and times where that's important. But the faith of God is a different thing. Another example is the light. You know where the Bible talks about uh, Saul on the road to Damascus in uh, Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus? It says, a light shine from heaven brighter than the noonday sun. Well, what is that? That had to be a, it wasn't a natural light. It had to have been a supernatural light or the light of God. Well, what was the light of God in that case? It was something brighter than anything anybody had ever seen. So we understand that there are comparisons that are made, and there have to be comparisons that are made so that we could understand at least a little bit of what the Bible is trying to get across to us. But when the Bible talks about the life of God, it's talking about the essence of God himself. Now turn with me over to John chapter 3. Let me remind you of uh, something we've looked at before in this uh, respect as well. We'll start in verse 1. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. In other words, he said, and notice he was a Pharisee. Not all the Pharisees were, were evil. Not all the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. The Bible says there were a number of them that believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him openly because they were afraid of what would happen to him. Now, where he says, we know, we don't know who we is. It may have been others of the Pharisees. may have been others of the the chief priests or the rabbis, perhaps. We don't know who we is, but we certainly include Nicodemus. 
He's not just talking for himself. He's representing other people. And I think this is important, uh, or at least uh, instructive for us, because this is the way that natural people think. These are dead men. These are spiritually dead men. Even though they're religious, even though they're, they're acquainted with the law of Moses and so forth, whether they keep it or not, whether they're doing good or doing evil is a, is a debate for another time, perhaps. But these are spiritually dead men. But notice what they knew about God and about those that follow God. He said, we know that you've got to be from God because nobody can do these miracles except you do them, except, except God be with them. The only reason you can do these miracles is because God's with you. That's our proof that God is with you. Please remember that phrase, that God is with you. That's the only thing they ever knew that anybody could have is God with them. God had never been inside anybody prior to that point in time. So they're assuming that God is with Jesus, which he was. He was with him because he anointed him. But they had no idea that he was in him. They had no idea that the life of God was resident in Jesus, that Jesus was one of the Godhead, part of the Godhead. They had no idea that Jesus was the son of God here on the earth. They just knew that God was with him because they saw the miracles. Now, if the life that is in the Father, as the Father has life in himself, John 5, 26 again, as the Father has life in himself, so has the Son also, or so has he given unto the Son to have life in himself. If Jesus is doing miracles because God is with him, and the Bible says the life of God, the same life that God has, is the life that was in Jesus, then that has to mean that miracles are a product of the life of God. There's no other conclusion you can draw. Now, let me ask you a question. When did that stop being true? You've got a lot of the church world that says the day of miracles is past. Well, then that would mean the life of God has changed. That would mean, therefore, that God doesn't want other people to know that he is with us because miracles aren't being done. And who has the authority to make that change? You can't find anywhere in the Bible where God said, okay, now things are changing. Well, actually, you can. Jesus said things are changing, but he didn't say they were going to change so that less miracles would be done. He said things are changing so you'd all do miracles. And the result of that, or the cause of that, was that the life of God would be in everyone. Back to Nicodemus, he said, we know that you're come from God. God has to be with you because nobody can do the miracles that you're doing except God be with him. Jesus answered and said in verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as we've said before, a lot of people think that Jesus changed the subject. A lot of the church takes this as a pattern. Well, miracles aren't important. Getting people saved is important. But Jesus didn't change the subject. Jesus said, yeah, miracles are part of the kingdom of God, and there's only one way you can enter that kingdom, and that is through the new birth. Why? Because being born again is about the life of God coming in you. In other words, instead of Jesus saying, yeah, it's all about me, he's saying miracles are a part of the kingdom of God, and you can enter enter that kingdom by accepting the life of God in you too. He goes on to say in the verses that we know so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have life everlasting. What does he mean? He's not saying eternal life instead of miracles. He's saying eternal life, the life of God, that which uh, comes into a person as a result of the new birth, is the entrance to miracles. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. Can you see that? 
Jesus hadn't changed the subject. He's not saying, no, 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 miracles aren't important. Being born again is. He's saying being born again is the entrance to miracles. Now, let me ask you a question. If that's true, if being born again is the entrance to miracles, if being born again is the, is the foundation, the open door to miracles, why are so few miracles done in the body of Christ? Got to be something more to it than that. Turn with me over to, uh, so let's start in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me show you something that Paul said, writing to Timothy. Timothy, of course, was born again. Timothy was a minister at this point in time. He was pastor of the church at Ephesus, as a matter of fact. And notice what he gave instruction to Timothy about. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. He said, fight the good fight of faith. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. This is the only fight the Bible says we're in. He didn't say fight your neighbor, fight your boss, fight the government. We may have to, but that's not what we're instructed, what we're instructed to do. It says fight the good fight of faith. Why? Why should we need to fight the good fight of faith? What's the importance of fighting the good fight of faith? Lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on Zoe, the life of God. Now, if the Zoe life of God is just about being born again, is he telling Timothy, now get saved before you go preach again? Can't be saying that. Timothy was saved as a product of Paul's ministry. Paul knows he's born again. Paul knows he has received the life of God. So what does he mean when he says lay hold of the life of God by fighting the good fight of faith? He's saying being born again is not enough to walk in the miracle working power of God. Being born again is not enough to take advantage by itself to take advantage of everything that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. There is something you're going to have to do to lay hold on. Now, if you look at other translations, most of them are very similar to this. Lay hold, take hold. But the word literally means, the word uh, that's translated lay hold in the Greek literally means to seize. To seize. And the implication is, if you don't do your part by fighting the good fight of faith, there are aspects of the life of God. I would submit to you that those are the miraculous aspects or characteristics of the life of God that will pass you by or go unused. Now, if this is true, there should be other scriptures that confirm that, shouldn't it? But Jesus said, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. In other words, he's saying, be careful that you don't come short of any of the promises of God. Which means you can. Which means it's possible for you to come short on promises of God. Now stop and think about that before we go any further. Does that mean the promises of God aren't true? It's impossible for the promises of God to not be true. It's impossible. If God said it, there's power behind it. So then, therefore, the implication, once again, is that there's a, there's a part that the individual plays so that those promises... So that, and remember, Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Zoe, the life of God. The Word of God is the foundation for everything that we believe, the, for the fight of the good fight of faith that we fight, so that we can access the blessings of God or the miracle working power 
that's inherent in the life of God. So he said, you need to be careful not to fall short of any of the promises of God. In other words, fight the good fight of faith to seize them, to lay hold on them, to take hold on them, to take advantage of what Jesus has done. It's not God's fault. It's not God's responsibility. It's ours. And notice the example that he uses to prove it. Verse 2, for unto us was the gospel preached. Now, what's the gospel? The good news of Jesus. For unto us was the gospel priest as well as unto them. Now them he's talking about in the previous chapter are the, the children of Israel in the, in the, uh, that came out of Egypt that got to the edge of the promised land and didn't go in because of unbelief. They said, we can't do it even though God said, this is the land I've chosen for you. The 12 spies went in, 10 of them came back with an evil report. That evil report was a report of doubt and unbelief. So it says, for unto us was the gospel priest as well as unto them. But the word priest did not profit them. The word priest did not profit them. It's telling you the word won't work under certain circumstances. That's why the church argues about healing. That's why the church argues about miracles. Because they don't understand, for the most part, the church world does not understand the part or the responsibility of the individual in making the word real for themselves. They know it when it comes to being born again. They know how to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. They know how to operate in the fight, the good fight of faith in that respect. But when it comes to other things, they think if it's going to happen, it's going to be because God makes it happen. But in this case, with the children of Israel in the wilderness, or really before they went into the wilderness, the word did not profit them. Why didn't it profit them? Why didn't it work for them? Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So 1 Timothy 6.12 says we've got to fight the good fight of faith to lay hold on the promises of God or the blessings of God or the benefits of of, uh, the life of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 says, unless you mix faith with the promise, which is the life of God in action, it's not going to work for you. It's not going to work for you. Now there's there's a story in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 14. You'll remember the story when uh, Moses has led the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt. And he's come to a place where Pharaoh has changed his mind. Pharaoh finally says, after the death of the firstborn, he says, get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. And then everybody starts screaming, our kids are dead and you let the people go that killed them. So Pharaoh sends his army after, after Moses and the children of Israel. Now Moses has led the children of Israel by the direction of the Lord to a certain place. He's got mountains on one side. He's got the Red Sea behind them, or really in front of them as they're going forward. He's got uh, the wilderness on the other side, place where he's boxed in. He can't go any further. He's got Pharaoh and his armies, the greatest army on the face of the earth, bearing down behind him. The children of Israel cry out to Moses and say, oh, my goodness, what a terrible leader you are. Look at where you brought us. We're going to die right here. And Moses said, just be still and see the salvation of the Lord. And Moses turns around and says to God, what are we going to do? And it's interesting because God gets mad at it. The Lord rebukes Moses and says, what are you crying unto me for? Seriously. I have no idea what Moses is thinking at that moment, but I know exactly what I'd be thinking. I'd be pointing in three directions. This would seem like a perfect time to pray. Yet God says, what are you crying unto me for? 
And here's why he says that. He says, you stretch forth the rod. Now, the rod is what God had given Moses as a sign of his power, as a sign of the miracles that Jesus did. Now, the rod was a type of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 11 says, in verse 1, it says, out of the, the root of Jesse, talking about David and his lineage, shall come a rod. And that rod it's talking about is the Messiah. So Jesus was a type of the rod that Moses used to do the miracle working power of God before Pharaoh. When he threw the rod down, it became a serpent, picked it back up again, it became a stick. He spread, the, he stretched the rod out over the, the, uh, the Red Sea, or not the Red Sea, the Nile River, and it turned to blood and all the different plagues and stuff. And almost every one of them, the rod was used in some manner or another. So God says to Moses, what are you crying out to me for? In other words, this is not my place to do anything. It's your place to do something. Here's where the church misses it. The church thinks that all we need to do is pray, and then whatever God's will is, it'll be done. And yet God is sitting in heaven with the same attitude as he had in Moses' situation, saying it's not up to me what happens, it's up to you what happens. I'm standing on ready, you do something. So he told Moses, stretch forth the rod over the Red Sea. And he did. You remember the story how the waters parted? It took a period of time. It was overnight. And in that period of time, the pillar of cloud separated between uh, the children of Israel and uh, Pharaoh's army to protect them. God had provided defense for them while the, the miracle was taking place. And so they went over the next morning. They went over dry shot on dry ground. And when Pharaoh's army chased in after them, Moses stretched forth the rod again. And the water came together and drowned Pharaoh's army. Now, there was a song that was given to them by the Holy Spirit to Miriam, Moses' sister, in chapter 15 of of Exodus. And in that, that song that they sang, that song of gratitude that they sang, it tells how God did this. It says the waters were congealed in a heap. Now, what does congealed mean? Have you ever heard jello? My mom used to make me jello all the time. That's before they found out there was... Poisoning the dye and all that kind of stuff, you know. I have no idea how we survived. Now, how do you make jello? You take water, just plain water, and you mix this magic powder in there. And then you put it in the refrigerator for a little bit, and then it comes out in this, these things that you can cut into squares. Now you can cut water into squares because there's this magic stuff that you mix into the water. Now, folks, the Bible says, that the thing that causes the word to come to pass for you is to mix faith with it. Now, there's something, there's a supernatural, there's a heavenly substance that's better than jello. That'll change any situation you're in. Moses didn't sprinkle jello. He stretched forth the rod. And that rod was a sign of the life of God, faith in God's life, faith in the fact that God was with him. You remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus? We know that God is with you. That's all that anybody could ever have is God with them. Jesus says it's going to be different with you. It's not going to just be God with you. It's going to be God in you. That's why we have a better covenant established upon better promises. You don't just have God with you. You've got him in you. Well, if the life of God with them caused miracles like the Red Sea to part, what would the life of God in you do? Really, folks, if you think about it, everything that God did, every miracle that's recorded in the Bible, every miracle that God has ever done is a result of one and only one thing, and that is the life of God. We think of God being alive and being able to do miracles. That's not the way it works. God 
is miraculous. Everything God does is miraculous. God doesn't do natural things. Everything God does from the spirit realm into this natural realm is a miraculous act. God's not a God of miracles. He's just a miracle God. You can't have God without having some kind of miraculous thing. It's impossible. You can't separate God from his miracles. Now, we do. We separate God from his love, but God is love. We talk about the faith of God like it's a characteristic or an attribute of God, but it's just who he is. God can't say anything apart from faith. It would be impossible for God to speak doubt because he's a God of faith. The faith of God is who God is. The love of God is who God is. The miracles of God is just who he is. And all throughout the Bible, we have evidence of the life of God in action. You remember in uh, Joshua's day? Joshua, is, this is why the children of Israel were fighting in the wilderness. Joshua goes out to fight against the enemies. Moses stands up on the hill. Joshua and, and Caleb are still leaders of the children of Israel. And so they say, the people need to see you. Stand up on the hill. This is their idea. This isn't God's idea. God doesn't say, Moses, stand on the hill. Moses, lift your hands. As long as you lift your hands, the the battle will be won. This is what his own people told him. The people need to see you, Moses. Stand up there so that they, they can see you and be inspired to fight. Moses lifted up his hands. And when he lifted up his hands, the children of Israel prevailed over their enemies. But his hands got tired. And so when he laid his hands down, they started to lose. What is this a sign of? This is a sign of the action, the responsibility, the um, uh, the work of the individual. It's a, it's a symbol of the fight of faith. Here's the good fight of faith. Hands lifted is a sign of praise. Here's a sign of the fight of faith in the Old Testament. As long as you keep your hands raised in the middle of a battle, you'll win the battle. In other words, as long as you hold steady and hold fast through the confession of your faith and praise God for the answer, it's impossible for the life of God to fail. Now, he needed help. There were two people that came and sat on either side of him or sat him down literally and held his hands up so that they'd prevail. But this was the work of the individual. What was this? His hands raised was mixing faith, mixing this magical supernatural substance called faith to change the tide of the battle. The people didn't fight better when his hands were up. How could they even know his hands were up if they're fighting? What are they, swinging? (laughs) How would they know? Folks, it wasn't something that the battler, that the warriors knew about. It was something that happened as a result of the action of Moses, who, because he represented them, represented all of the children of Israel. He was the leader. Every work of God in, in Joshua's day, when they did take the promised land, Joshua needed more time. God didn't say, Joshua, here's what I want you to pray. Joshua just looked to the Lord and said, I need more time. Stop the sun and the moon. Look at what the life of God did. Look at what the life of God did just because God was with them as servants. Now, folks, you talk to anybody that knows the laws of physics, and I'm, I, I know a little bit about them, but not a whole lot. But you talk to anybody that knows the laws of physics, do you know what it would take to stop the sun and the moon? I mean, the earth is revolving and uh, the earth is spinning and then the earth is revolving around the sun and, and all these things are working together. I don't know what happened. I'm told that if the earth stopped spinning, it's traveling at 100 miles an hour, spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, excuse me. 
And if it stopped spinning, we'd all spin off into the, into, into space because that's what holds us together. That's what creates gravity. Well, in order for the earth to stop spinning, or the, in order for the sun to stop, it seems to me like the earth would stop, have to stop spinning until, unless the whole universe stopped in place. But if the sun, if the earth stopped spinning, then all the people on the earth would have flown, flown off into space. So that couldn't be what happened. So what did happen? Folks, my mind starts going tilt after a while. Because I think, well, this, but it, it couldn't be that because of this. And it couldn't be this because of that. And man, I guess it was just God. There was another time in, uh, in Hezekiah's day where Isaiah went to Hezekiah and told him, some prophesied something to him about the plan of God. And Hezekiah said, I need a sign. He said, well, Isaiah said, well, what sign do you want? He said, I'll give you a choice. I'll either make the sun go forward 10 degrees in the sky or backwards 10 degrees. And Hezekiah said, well, anybody can make it go forward. <laughs> make it go back. And it did. How? Because Isaiah mixed that special supernatural substance called faith with it. And it changed the situation completely. Changed it entirely. Folks, when you look at the physical laws of nature, I, I, I got to tell you, I get amused. It's frustrating, but I get really amused by all this global warming stuff. Because God said that after um, the flood in Noah's day, he said, until the world comes to an end, there'll be day and night, cold and heat, summer and winter, seed time and harvest. The earth has always gone through cycles of changing in climate. Other parts of the country call those seasons. <laughs> and I have no doubt whatsoever, because the Bible says that the earth is groaning and travailing until Jesus comes back. I have no doubt whatsoever that those changes in climate are going to get more and more extreme. But to think that man can do something about it is what just tickles the heck out of me. Oh, let's just pass more laws. Son of a gun, that'll stop the cold and the wind. Oh, let's just tax you more for the carbon that you use. Yeah, that'll fix it. Now, I'm not against all that stuff. I mean, if you want to support all that stuff, if you want to give more of your money to the government so that you, you know, they can do something stupid and it won't work, I don't care. Sorry with me, I don't care. Personally, I'd like to keep my money so I can use it for the gospel. And don't kid yourself, that's what whole, that's what all this stuff that the devil is behind world governments is about. Taking your money and taking your freedom so that you can't use the money in the way God wants you to do it. You're very welcome. <laughs> it's just the truth. But if you don't know the Bible, you don't know any of that. All you're left with university schooling and all that kind of stuff, and boy, what a blessing that is. But God just simply stops the universe. God just simply stops the earth. Says, okay, I'll turn the sun back 10 degrees for you. Hezekiah, just so that you'll have a sign. Just so that you'll have a stinking sign. Sure, no problem. Man, that life of God, those miracles, man, that must be tough to access. No, it's that supernatural stuff that you mix in called faith that does the work. And that's all it takes. Man in Elijah's day, Syrian captain named Naaman had leprosy, incurable disease. Heard about a prophet in Israel. 
Comes down to where Elisha is. Elisha doesn't even come out and see him. Says, go dip in this Jordan River seven times. This guy is not used to being blown off. Which is exactly what he thinks is taking place. He thinks this guy, this prophet, who this, this little prophet thinks, does he think he is? To not even come out and deal with me or attend to me. Doesn't he know who I am? And almost missed it. He almost missed the whole thing because he got so mad he started saying, well, I could, if a dipping in water is going to do it, there are rivers in Syria and Damascus that are better than the Jordan River. Why in the world would I have to do that? And people calmed him down. His servants calmed him down and said, Master, Master, wait a minute, wait a minute. If he'd asked you to do something hard, you'd have done it. Just because it seems easy and just because it seems like it wouldn't work, don't let that stop you. Go ahead and do what he said. And so he does. And by simply doing it, not even with the right attitude, but simply by doing it, he mix in, mixes in this supernatural substance called faith, and it changes everything about him. He comes up out of the water clean. Now he's happy. Now he thinks that prophet is something. He wants to go back and give him everything he owns. Folks, I get amused at the government health care program. You know what's amusing to me? I'm going on vacation, so I don't really care. You know what's amusing to me is you've got everybody on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, screaming about this VA thing. Screaming about this stuff with the health care situation with the Veterans Administration. And it is a tragedy. Where people died waiting for health care. Folks, you know what the VA administration is? Government-run health care. But don't worry. Obamacare will be much, much better. Folks, God's got a health care program. His name is Jesus. And the world can do anything and everything they want. I don't really care what happens to the health care. used to. Not anymore. Because I realize the world's going to get worse and worse. People are going to get more and more stupid. More and more evil. Government is going to do more and more to try to control our lives. That's fine. No problem. God will overcome that. For those that walk in faith. For those that work by this supernatural substance called faith. The word of God will sustain them. And cause them to go over. I don't care if tax rates get up to 95%. God will see us through if we operate in this thing called faith. But the world thinks it's got the answers for everything. The world's what's made the problems. Every miracle is an indication. It's an operation of the life of God. That's why Nicodemus knew. Jesus, we know you've got to be from God because nobody could do this miracle stuff that you're doing. Except God be with him. It's the only way. Miracles are a part of the life of God. What did that change when Jesus came on the scene? Absolutely not. Jesus had a need to go across the sea and didn't have a boat handy, so he walked on the water. So this life of God is still overcoming the laws of physics. Now, how did that work? Did gravity just not keep him pinned to the, to the, to the earth so that he walked on top of the water? What happened? I don't know. I just know that the laws of physics were suspended because of the life of God. Why? Because Jesus mixed in this supernatural thing called faith. Start walking on the water. What about provision? What about lack? What about our financial well-being and stuff like that? Jesus had a need. He had a need to feed other people. So he mixed this thing and he just prayed a simple prayer. And mixed this supernatural thing called faith in. And one little boy's lunch fed 5,000 people.
Has the life of God changed? The life of God is what produced that miracle. People say, well, that was the Son of God, and nobody can do what the Son of God did. Jesus said, you would. Why? Because you got the same life that he has. Another time Jesus needed to pay his taxes. I love the fact that this story is in the Bible. Jesus needed to pay his taxes. Not because he owed them, but because Peter wouldn't shut up. So he said, well, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't owe the taxes, but we don't want to offend anybody. So here's what you do, Peter. Go drop a hook in the ocean, and the first fish that comes up will have a coin in his mouth. Use that coin to pay your taxes and pay mine. What caused the fish, the certain fish, the right fish at the right time, to pick up a coin and a piece of gold money in his mouth and catch on to Peter's hook? The life of God. Has that life of God changed? Then God knows where your fish are too. All it takes is this supernatural substance sprinkled in called faith. That's all it takes. Turn with me over to John chapter 14. Let me show you something here. There's a, um, I, I, I don't know how the translators could have done any better with what they were working with. But there's something here that you need to recognize that doesn't really come through. Um, I'm just going to start uh, reading in verse 8. This is Jesus on the night that he's betrayed. John tells us a firsthand account of what happened. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Which means, very simply, which means this, if you want to know what God would do in any situation, all you have to look at is what Jesus did. And God never changes. So what Jesus did about any and every situation when he was here on the earth is the same thing God will do now. So this idea that things are changed and things don't work and supernatural and miraculous and stuff like that's different, that's hogwash. If Jesus knew what he was talking about. I kind of think he did. So he said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Now, let me, let me back up. There's, there's another thought I want to add to what I just said. And that is, so much of the time the church says, well, we see what Jesus did, but what would God do now? In other words, they're doing the same thing Philip did. Philip saw Jesus. Philip had Jesus in front of him day after day after day after day after day. And Jesus is asking, how is it that you're saying, show us the Father? Have you not seen what I've done? In other words, the only way you're ever going to see God is to see what Jesus did. Now, that may not be enough for you. It certainly isn't enough for some. At this point in time, it wasn't enough for Philip. And that's your choice. But Jesus is very simply saying there's only one way you're ever going to know what God is like and who God is and the life that God has and the operations of God the Father, and that is by looking at me. That's never going to change. Never going to change. Verse 9, believest thou, or verse 10, believest thou not that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? Here's two reasons, two ways that you can know. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. Number two, but the Father in me, do that Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. He said there's two ways you can know God by looking at Jesus, from the words that he spoke and the works that he did. Now, the works that he did is what Nicodemus was saying over in John chapter 3. We know God's with you because of the miracles. 
So the works would have to include the miracles. So he said, there's two ways you can know the Father by looking at me. Number one is you have to look at me if you're going to know God. Can't look at your denomination. Can't look to your preacher's preaching. You've got to look to one thing, and that is look to me, Jesus said. And there's two ways you can know by looking at me, through the words that I speak and the works that I'm doing. Why? Because those never change. The words are spirit and life, and God never changes. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. He's saying the same thing to him that Nicodemus said to him in John 3. We know because of the miracles. He said, believe me because I'm telling you, or else just believe because of the miracles. Your choice, but believe. The key is to believe. In other words, he's saying the key is to mix this supernatural thing called faith in with what I'm saying and what I'm doing. It's the only way it works is to mix that special supernatural substance called faith. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, he that mixes faith in to who I am and what I'm here to do, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Verse 13 is what I want you to see. Verse 13 and 14, really. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name. Everybody say whatsoever. What limit is there on whatsoever? If he had said in the few things that qualify as being part of the plan and the purpose of God. Then we'd have a reason to believe what the church is saying. But he didn't. He said in whatsoever. You shall ask, this word ask means to call for or require, to place a demand on, like you place a demand on your bank when you use your ATM card or write a check. Whatsoever you shall ask, call for or require and demand, in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. P.C. Nelson was with a group of ministers, young ministers uh, before he died. I think he died in the... uh, 50s, 1950-something, I don't know. Anyway, somewhere around that time, he was with a group of young ministers. And one of the guys in the group said, "Uh, how many languages do you know? And he said, not any yet. And then they they kind of chuckled and they they qualified and said, well, okay, how many can you speak, read, and or write? He said, 32. Well, he's got me beat by about 32. He was, at the time of his death, recognized as the foremost authority on the Greek language and the second foremost, second guy, uh, most knowledgeable about the Hebrew. So the Bible was, was, you know, really plain to him. I mean, as far as the language was concerned. And he brought this out to this group of young ministers. He said, now, the translators in John 14, 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. He said, the translators use Rightly so, the strongest assertion that you can make. Now, the strongest assertion you can make in the English language is, I will or I shall. He said, but let me read this to you out of the Greek. And he said, and one of the ones that was part of the group said that he read it. None of them knew Greek, so it didn't make any sense to them. He said, here's what this means. If you shall ask anything in my name, instead of I will do it, it's Jesus literally saying, if I don't have it, I'll make it. That's how strong this is. If you shall ask anything in my name, if I don't have it, I'll make it for you. Now, do you understand what whatsoever you shall ask means? If God doesn't have it, he'll make it for you. 
Now, so many times people agonize over, will God do this for me? And God is saying, just sprinkle that stuff called faith in. Instead of questioning, instead of wondering, instead of agonizing over, will God do this for me? Is this selfish for me to ask this? Oh, what if I'm operating out of the will of God? Those are all things that the devil will speak to your mind. Instead of all that kind of stuff, why don't we just mix in that special substance called faith and watch miracles happen? I want to close with this. Turn with me over back to uh, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Here's how far this life of God goes. Jesus is in a certain place and he gets word that his friend Lazarus is dead. Or actually he gets word that he's sick. And he purposely stays where he is for four more days. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that in that period of time, Lazarus will die. He has revelation from the Father about what's going to take place. And he knows what work he's going to do. So by the time he gets there, Lazarus' friend is dead. He's been buried for three days. And he finds his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And they're all upset about what's happened and, oh, if only you could have come and so forth. And notice that Jesus says to Martha in verse 23, John chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus said unto her, your brother shall rise again. Now, Martha does something that is so typical, and that is... It's a natural inclination, it's a tendency, and the devil will sure push you this way, to take the truth of God's Word and to try to spiritualize it some way or another, to try to take something away from what belongs to you here and now and push it off over into the future, heaven specifically. Martha said unto him, verse 24, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know what she should have said? She should have said, Jesus, what do you mean? But no, she knew what she thought she knew. Oh, I know that someday in the resurrection he'll rise again. Just because God does things that are beyond your capacity or your experience to be familiar with does not mean that you've exhausted the limits of the life of God. Jesus answers and says to her, please notice what Jesus answered. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, Zoe. In other words, he's saying, no, no, no. Your brother will live again physically, naturally. He'll return to this natural life. Why? Because of the life of God. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Now, Jesus is comparing some things. He's talking about natural life, and he's talking about spiritual life. He's saying, yeah, you're talking about the resurrection. He that believes in me and receives my life in himself, the life of God in himself, shall never die physically. I'm sorry, shall never die spiritually. Shall live on throughout eternity. But I'm talking about something different here, too. I'm talking about the limits or the unlimited capacity of the life of God to raise your brother from the dead. He winds up telling his, uh, Lazarus' other sister, Martha, didn't I tell you that if you would believe, you'd see the glory of God? What does that mean? That means all it takes is sprinkling in that, ma- that little supernatural stuff called faith. Just like you mix jello into water. Just mix in that supernatural stuff called faith and you'll get miraculous results. Every time. So what does he do? 
He stands before the, the tomb of Lazarus and says, roll away the stone. The sisters, concerned about etiquette, says, oh, wait a minute, we don't want to do that. He stinks by now. She still hadn't got it, has she? Can't hardly blame her. Because on one hand, we certainly understand where she'd be coming from. But on the other hand, she's seen Jesus do miracles. Why would this one be tougher for God? Let me ask you a question. What is too hard for God? Now, we can sit here all religiously looking pretty and all that kind of stuff and say, oh, we believe nothing is impossible with God. Well, then why do you fret over your situation? All it takes is sprinkling in that supernatural substance called faith. All you got to do is sprinkle a little faith on your situation. What are you worried about it for? That's why Paul told the church, be careful for nothing. By the Holy Ghost, he said, be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious or fret about anything. Why? Because all it takes is mixing in that supernatural substance called faith. Just put a little faith in there. And it'll work. You'll do the same things that Jesus did here on the earth. Why? Because you've got the same life that he had. God appeared unto, uh, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. He says, walk, before, walk perfect before me, for I am the Almighty God. It's translated the Almighty God. In the, in the Hebrew, it literally is the words El Shaddai. The meaning of El Shaddai is one of the seven redemptive names, seven covenant names that God revealed himself to, to Israel by. And El Shaddai literally means the all-sufficient one or the God that's more than enough. Is God more than enough for you? Or is God just half enough? That's a real question. If we really believe God's more than enough, what do we fret over our situation about? All it takes, we have a responsibility. It's not just on God. We have a responsibility. That responsibility is to mix in that special substance, that supernatural substance called faith. Because it's the only way the word of God, the promises of God, and the covenant blessings with God won't come to pass for us. That's why the Bible warns us. Don't be like those that didn't mix faith with it. Because then the word didn't work for them. Don't be like the rest of the church world that won't mix faith with it. You mix in that supernatural substance called faith. You mix in that supernatural substance. What is the Bible telling us? It's not telling us that don't worry, you'll never die here on the earth. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. But that's not a set time. The Bible also says in Psalm 91 that with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. How long is long? It's until you're satisfied. Oh, yeah, but Pastor Mike, I knew a dear saint of God and they died young. Well, I don't know about that dear saint of God. I don't know if they believed God was more than enough. Maybe they just believed he was half enough. And we've all had good people, maybe people in our own family, that died before their time. I can guarantee in every situation, if they had trusted God, if they had known more of God, if they had lived more according to the things of God, which we all can, no matter how mature we are in the things of God, we can all do more, we can all believe more, they could have lived longer. I wonder how many people are going to get to heaven and find out that their time wasn't lived out because of their actions. Would have changed my loved ones, changed my family totally. My dad might still be here. He might have made his life count for something. Who knows? So we miss our loved ones that have gone. But folks, that doesn't change the truth of the word. 
with long life I shall satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about the one that sets his love on him. The person that sets his love on God. So he's not saying that we won't ever die here on the earth, but he's saying you can sure live out your time. You can be satisfied with long life. Long life means a lot more to me now at age 58 than it used to when I was 30. I used to think 58 was old. Now I just realized I was stupid. Thank the Lord I've grown out of that. I want to show you the unlimited potential in the life of God that's in you. Every miracle is an aspect of the life of God, either the life of God, God with them, or the life of God, God in them. Every miracle is a result of the life of God. And that's the life Jesus came to bring you. And he said that he came that you might have it more abundantly. More abundantly says to me, unlimited potential. Abundant life for you may be different than abundant life for me because we are in different situations. We're in different places in our lives. We have different things that come against us. But abundant life for both of us would have to be unlimited potential. Unlimited potential. If you ask anything in my name, if I don't have it, I'll make it for you. Man, that just thrills my heart. Doesn't it yours? If I don't have it, what doesn't God have? I can't imagine that to begin with. But if he doesn't have it, he'll make it for you. That's how great the life of God is. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with us, please? Oh, Father, what a privilege to walk by faith. You said, Lord, that the just shall live by faith. We recognize the just as those that made Jesus the Lord of their lives. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege to use that supernatural substance called faith to mix it into any and every situation we're in and see the miracle-working power of God manifest in our lives. Father, open our eyes to the truth. Open our eyes, Father. Help us to break through those barriers that have been built up by years of wrong teaching and wrong thinking and wrong believing so that we truly recognize the unlimited potential of the power of God. Holy Spirit, make real to us the living God on the inside of us. Even as the Scripture says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The greater one's in us because we're born of the Spirit. Therefore, the Spirit resides in us. Jesus said, nothing shall be impossible to them that believe. Nothing shall be impossible. Make us possibility thinkers, Lord. Make us believers in the impossible. Just as Jesus was. Show us what we need to do, Father, to lift every barrier and every hindrance. So that we see that there's nothing that's too hard for you. Father, help us to realize that you truly are the God that's more than enough. The all-sufficient one. Therefore, you are the almighty one. And that there's nothing that's too hard for you. Father, I pray for each and every person that's here. Each and every person under the sound of my voice. You know their situations even though I might not. I pray, Father, that the life of God would dwell in them. 
And as they mix faith with your word and your promises and even the knowledge of who you are, that miracles would result. Do miracles for these people, Father, because of the life of God that dwells within them. Do financial miracles, Lord. Do physical miracles for them. Do family and relationship miracles for them, Lord. Because none of those things are too hard for you. Miracles on their jobs. Miracles in their acquaintances and with the people that they know, Father. Do miracles for them as they share the good news of who Jesus is to them. Make us a miracle people, Father. As we sprinkle that supernatural substance called faith in anything and everything that we do. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Why don't you stand together with us, please? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I hope you'll take some of the things that we've said and meditate on these things. Take them and make them real to you. Let them be a beginning point, not an end point, but a beginning point to get down in your spirit just who God is, just what Jesus has done, and just what's available to you. I wish for every person that you would enjoy life to the fullest. But no matter where you are in life, you can have more. God wants you to have more. There's an abundance waiting still for you. As we live by that special thing called faith. Calling those things that be not as though they are. And praising God for the answer. We love you. God bless you. Don't forget uh, this evening at 5 o'clock is prayer school. And 6 o'clock is healing school with Marilyn Neubauer. Have a great day. Great week. And you're dismissed.